following program is brought to you by your friends at Podcast One. Welcome to R.J. Bell's Dream Preview. Weekly winners from his Wise Guy Roundtable. Broadcasting from the pregame.com studios in Las Vegas. Here is R.J. Bell. Hey guys, we're here and let me tell you something. When Norm Pattis and Podcast One reached out and talked about the Vegas Truth podcast, I had no doubt who I wanted to be the first guest Oscar Goodman, 50 years in Las Vegas. He's been in the center of it. Mr. Goodman, it's an honor. RJ, a pleasure being here. I'm looking forward to this. All right, so I've read your book. Good. Got it right here. Right. I've watched a ton of videos. Well, you got to say the name of the book, the Being name, Oscar. Uh, here's the promotion, Being what? Oscar. Great book, great book. Right, but it's more than that. It's Being Oscar from a mob lawyer to mayor of Las Vegas, only in America. That's a journey. That's a journey, no doubt. It's a good journey. And throughout the entire journey, the one thing that I've seen you talk about the most is your adamance about the defense attorney and the role you played. Yes. I mean, 30 years ago, last week, you've been talking about it. Share with me sure. that passion. Well, uh, uh, no apologies, that's for sure, because our system of justice is based on the fact that everybody is presumed to be innocent unless and until... A jury of their peers finds them guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. So when you start off with that premise, you start off with the proposition that uh, people are entitled to a defense. And uh, I enjoyed it because many of my clients and many of the causes that I was involved in were unpopular. And I always said to myself, if I'm able to protect and defend the unpopular against constitutional violations or against prosecutorial misconduct, then those who are the average guy, the, the Joe on the street, uh, they're going to benefit from that because if I can protect the unpopular, certainly I would be able to protect and those who were not uh, in that of that ilk, so to speak, uh, would also be protected. So I enjoyed every second of it. Um, it was invigorating. I lived during the time of what was called the Warren Court, which was the Supreme Court that basically established certain constitutional rights that really weren't recognized. They, they put a great deal of emphasis on the Bill of Rights, the first 10 amendments of the United States Constitution, uh, to make sure that um, people weren't going to be subjected to unreasonable searches and seizures, uh, that people had the right to speak, uh, with, uh, they had the right to associate, uh, they had the right to bail under appropriate circumstances. They had the right to counsel. Before those uh, times, uh, folks uh, really don't remember, but uh, uh, people's uh, rights were being violated. Even after with your clients, oftentimes they were still violated. Well, they tried to violate it. That was my job. I was uh, the only person who was standing between an oppressive government, as I perceived them at the time, and my client, who was a citizen of the United States. Do you feel like that's changed? Oh, I, th I, think it, it? I, I think in many respects it has. I have uh, a great deal of respect now uh, for uh, folks that I know who are involved with law enforcement, whereas in the old days, when I first started to practice here, I wouldn't give you two cents for the, the FBI and the way they en engage themselves. Uh, the the uh, IRS criminal division wouldn't give you two cents for them. The DEA, ATF, I felt that they were very, very abusive. 
uh, they had individuals around the country who I believe were abusive. But um, and not being in the arena, maybe I'm a little more mellow now, <laughs> and I don't have that sense uh, of uh, uh, overreaching as far as government officials are concerned. Though you practiced all the way up to 1999, That's right? correct. When I, when I decided to run for mayor, I stopped practicing actively. I'm still a member of the bar of the state of Nevada and other places as well. But and and your been, son's an attorney. I, I have a son who's an attorney, and I have another son who's a judge. So uh, we, we keep the law in our family. I have another son who's an oncologist and specializes in prostate cancer and has his MD, PhD, and my daughter, I think uh, I'm as proud of her as anybody in the world. She's in charge of the burn unit as far as family therapy at UMC, our uh, local county hospital. So all of the children have done very, very well, and they all live back here. They went away to college. They said, we're never coming back to Las Vegas. We can't stand Las Vegas. And my wife said, okay, I'm going to take you up on that. You can't come back to Las Vegas until you do three years after your final degree elsewhere. And after they did their three years, one went into the Marine Corps, the other one worked for a big law firm, my daughter worked for an accounting firm, and my son was back in New York. And they've New, all come back. New York Presbyterian, they're all back here, six little grandchildren, so I got the best of it. And obviously an amazing testament, right? Because in this day and age, with boomerang kids, parents don't have to fight their kids to uh, go somewhere. You said go somewhere so you know an alternative and they all exactly. chose to Well, back. it's not only the alternative, but uh, she was right because uh, she had a high-profile position in the community. She founded the Meadows School, which is the first nonprofit, non-sectarian private school in Nevada. And uh, uh, people would refer to her as St. Carolyn at the time because they valued what she was doing for education. And I had a reputation, of course, as the mob lawyer, whatever goes along with that. And she didn't want them to contend with that kind of pressure. So she wanted them to be able to stand on their own two feet. And that's why she gave them the Carolyn rule that they had to spend three years elsewhere. Now, if you go through your book, Being Oscar, and taking out quotes about the feds, I mean, it's eye-popping. Quote, in almost every case I tried, feds thought nothing of withholding evidence, distorting the facts, or making deals with despicable individuals. You called them crusaders, how did they rationalize this? These weren't all evil people, you wouldn't think. No, I understand that. Uh, they uh, rationalized it by saying that the ends justified the means. They didn't care how they were going to get my clients. And you don't get clients. Uh, you don't get people in our system. You uh, use lawfully obtained evidence. You use it in a manner which is acceptable. And if you get a conviction, uh, then uh, the, the fellow who uh, played has to pay. I think it's much more uh, valuable to the whole scheme of things that we hold uh, the, those responsible for enforcing the laws to a very high standard and make sure they do enforce the law and not violate the law before they would be entitled to a conviction. But uh, many of these people felt that my clients were so bad uh, that uh, get them off the street. It really doesn't matter whether we're going to be doing it right or not. It really they, doesn't matter if whether... Did, if they didn't do this one, they did it. Exactly. That's the way they looked at it. If he didn't kill this guy, he killed that guy. That's the way they looked at it. And all my clients, according to them, killed 26 people. I never had a client who killed 25. I never had a client <laughs> who killed 26. 20, right? 26. It's always 26. <laughs> 26 people uh, were caused uh, to die as a result of the hand of my client. I mean, that's how silly it was. It really was. But it wasn't silly to my clients because wow. they were paying me a lot of money. 
And uh, I hope you've never been in trouble, my friend. I've but, been lucky in that regard. Well, you, uh, but you probably have lived a, a rather clean life, which is the way you're supposed to do it. But if but, there was a cop following me every day, well, well, I would have had some well, trouble. Well, when you're in trouble, it, it ain't fun. I'll tell you that. But you have it over your head. Uh, you think about it all the time. I, uh, I, it's funny. I was representing my clients to the best of my ability, and I really didn't realize, no matter how many clients I had, how many cases I tried, no matter how many courthouses I was in, the pressure of facing jail or prison is unbelievable. I had uh, one client, his name was uh, Natalie Rikiki. His nickname was Big Chris. He was a, a giant of a man. Purportedly, he was John Gotti's consigliere back in New York, and he came out to Nevada, and he was uh, charged out here. As soon as I was retained, and I'm not going to say by whom because that's what I was fighting, the government served a subpoena on me to appear in front of the grand jury. They wanted to know who hired me on his behalf, how much they paid me uh, on his behalf, and whether it was in cash. And I wouldn't give them that information. And they hauled me in front of a judge. And the judge was a, a decent fellow. Phil Pro was his name. And I thought he was a friend of mine. But at the end of the day, uh, the government said, we want Mr. Goodman because he won't give us this information. How old were you at this point? Oh, uh, I had been practicing for years. It was this was so in your the, reputation. This was, was in the nineties. This was in the nineties, and uh, the judge said yeah, you have to give him this information because it's not under the attorney-client privilege. That's just uh, uh, oral communications between the client and uh, the attorney. That is protected by this privilege. But as far as the uh, record is concerned, if they're asking for it, you have to give it to him. And I said, Judge, with all due respect, I'm not going to give it to him. So uh, the government prosecutor, and she's not around anymore. I think they sort of disappear after they get beat up after a while. And uh, she said, we want Mr. Goodman sent to prison forthwith. Now, you know what forthwith means, don't you? Quickly. It means very, very quickly. And the marshals were licking their, their chops and the, the, the cuffs were beginning to come out. And, and a lot of law enforcement had... A vendetta, I think, against you because well, they felt they, like you were so effective. Let, let's, let's put it this way. I didn't have too many friends who were working for the FBI. And they said, um, the judge said, what do you have to say, Mr. Goodman? I said, look, they do what they have to do. You do what you have to do. But I'd like to be able to take this to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals as an appellate issue. And he said, all right, I'm going to give you the opportunity to do that. But if you lose and the case law is against you, and I knew that, uh, we're going to uh, – uh, you may, we're going to have you back in court and you better bring your tooth, toothbrush next time. So went to the Ninth Circuit. Ninth Circuit affirmed uh, the contempt citation. Were you defending yourself? At that point in time, I was uh, in the sense that uh, they wanted information about my client and nobody uh, – no, a lawyer probably wouldn't have taken the hard stance that I did knowing what the case law was. But I was making this a matter of principle and they hauled me back in front of the judge. He said, well – the government wants you to uh, go to jail until you give me that information, Mr. Goodman. I said, well, to be quite frank with you, Judge, uh, I'm not going to give you the information. So then the government attorney stands up and she says, jail doesn't scare Goodman. Well, little did she know the bile was already in my throat. <laughs> I had half the lawyers in town uh, in the courtroom saying, Judge Pro, let the O go. I mean, there was a chant going. <laughs> they had T-shirts made up. There was a bullhorn outside. My whole family had come up. It's as though Dad was going on a vacation. I had already been out to North Las Vegas where the federal jail was. And thank God the jailer there knew me and he liked me. And he said, we have this jail set aside for you. So it wouldn't have been the worst experience. And uh, I'm sure they wouldn't have locked the, uh, the gate to, 
too fast and, and too, uh, too uh, solidly. And, uh, well, the judge said, well, what do you want? We want him fined. So the judge said, all right, I'm going to fine him. I'm going to fine him $25,000 unless he gives us this information. And $2,500 a day thereafter. Yes. So uh, I said, I'm not going to give you the information. He says, well, you better give us the 25000 I said, you want cash or check? <laughs> I mean, what am I so- going to say? He says, well, uh, your, your, your check will be good. I said, it is good, and uh, I'll write it out. I took it to the clerk's office, and they didn't know how to make an entry. No one had ever been fined like this before for uh, failure to obey a judicial order. I guess uh, in this day and age, I probably would have been pardoned by this time. But um, uh, back then, uh, uh, no pardons were waiting for me. And uh, I wrote them the check for 25000 And comes Friday, and I didn't know what to do over the weekend because I had been paying $2,500 a day. And I called the judge. He said, well, well, we'll trust you until Monday, Mr. Goodman. So uh, No vig. It got to, no vig. So we got to a point. Oh, a little sports talk here. <laughs> uh, we, we got to the point that— um, I'd gotten up to 50000 I had a case where I was representing LaToya Gordon's, well, I call her LaToya Gordon, LaToya Jackson's husband, Jack Gordon, who had been charged down in Orange County. And I had to go down there, and I went down on a Sunday night, and I went to the hotel, and there was a whole gang of uh, prosecutors uh, who were strike force attorneys, which was the organized crime uh, strike force from the Justice Department, having a convention. And a fellow who was there, Frank Marine, I still remember his name, came up to me. And he said, Oscar, you're in real trouble now. I said, how much more trouble can I be in? He said, well, they're going to indict you criminally, which is a big difference than uh, civil contempt and criminal contempt. Because had I been found guilty, I could have lost my law license. And, and let's be honest, if it was the 70s and you were up and coming... It's a different story. You have story. less to lose. You have a lot to lose at well, this Well, you always have a lot to lose if yeah. you're going to go to prison, that's but, for sure. But the step from the life you were leading uh, of in course. the 90s was of even course. a bigger drop. No, no question. So um, I said, uh, how do you hear that? Well, they're going to call a grand jury on you. I said, well, they have to do what they have to do. And got through my business in California and went back to Las Vegas. And I called Mr. Rikiki up and I said, Chris, I got to see you. I explained the situation to him. He said, give it to him. I said, well, I'm not going to give it to him unless you tell me to give it to him because this is still a matter of principle for me. You know, people don't understand that principle is principle and you don't waver from principle or else you're a phony. And one thing I wasn't, and that was a phony. And you loved the catcher in the rye. I love the catcher. And that was the the Uh, term he used. Not be a phony. Right. That's what Holden Caulfield said. He said, I'm not going to be a phony. And I wasn't going to be a phony. But he said, you're no use to me in jail. He says, I need you to defend me. So I said, okay, and called the judge when I got through my conversation. I said, judge, I'm ready to comply with uh, the subpoena. He said, all right, we'll set it for 8.30 tomorrow morning in court. And I went to court, and I brought the record with me. Well, I can't help it if they didn't like my record, (laughs) but I gave them what they asked for. And it was a receipt because I always received in even cash, and it showed how much cash I had gotten as a retainer, and it had as the source— my office wrote, and it wasn't in my handwriting, this is my policy in the office, because I knew someday I was going to have this problem. It had anonymous. The prosecutor starts saying, see, he's tricking us. He's trick." And finally, Judge Pro said, wait a second. The guy did everything that he did. You asked for something. He gave it to you. This is the end of it. And that was the end of it. I mean, I was $50,000 short, but uh, I felt a lot better about uh, the system. You talk about principle like 
people without it, they're the weird ones or they're the ones that we should have contempt for. But what percentage of people on either side of this battle, the attorneys on the defense side, the the prosecutors, the law enforcement, how many people had principle? I mean, well, was it you half? would hope that uh, you, it, you would hope that everybody has. But principle. what was your experience? Well, as I said, uh, I don't think I was ever in a federal case in those days where I didn't catch the federal agent who was in charge of the case or one of the agents who was involved in a search and seizure and obtaining a confession or whatever didn't lie. No, that's that's so, so let's say that again. Nearly every case. Uh, no, every case. Every case. Every case I caught them in a lie. Someone who was sworn to, to tell the truth. Justice, well, right? Not uh, only that, but they took an oath in court to uh, swear to God to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Uh, in my book, I tell my favorite story, which is probably the least significant as far as a reader is concerned, because it doesn't involve a supposed mafia guy or some big crime boss. It involves a, uh, a black fella that I represented who was a purported heroin dealer. And I got to tell you this story, if you don't mind. Absolutely. His name was Manny Baker. He's since deceased. And uh, he was a, uh, an interesting guy. He had the reputation as being a heroin dealer. He lived over on the west side, which in Las Vegas is sort of a ghettoized, or at least at that point in time, was a ghettoized area. So there was deep segregation at this point. Oh, there was, uh, let's put it this way, there was segregation. I don't know how deep. There was deep segregation when I got here in 1964 with my wife. It was the Mississippi of the West. I mean, I, I came from Philadelphia. She came from New York. And there were water fountains here that uh, black people weren't allowed to drink out of. So, I mean, that's that's the city that we came to. Of course, over the years, it's evolved and uh, for the best. And that kind of segregation doesn't exist, which is a good thing. But uh, Manny was uh, he was liked in his neighborhood uh, because uh, he had money uh, from his dealings and he was nice to people. And he was a he was a quiet guy. And Manny went down to uh, and I'm going to I'm going to uh, uh, abridge the story because my wife, when she hears me tell it, says I take too long doing it. But <laughs> uh, he was going to meet somebody uh, down in Texarkana at the airport who was flying in um, heroin. And Manny was going to pay uh, uh, for the heroin at the um, airport when the exchange took place. Well, uh, the law enforcement got word that this deal was going to go down and they had a stake out at the airport. They had a stake out uh, on the plane. They knew the fellow who was uh, flying this in, the flight, the whole works. And um, they arrest him when he's coming off the plane. Not Manny, but the fellow who's bringing in the uh, controlled substance. There were three cops who participated in what took place with Manny outside the airport. They were all uh, state troopers. Uh, they were rednecks. They were real crackers. And I invoked what's called the exclusionary rule, which means when a witness testifies, all other witnesses are excused and have to leave the courtroom so they wouldn't be able to follow the testimony and shape their testimony to conform to a witness who testified before them. So the first guy gets on the scene. He said, well, take the oath. Yes. And what is the oath? I swear to God to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. So help me God. Now, those are important words. OK, as far as I'm concerned, because once you say them, well, you're under what you oath. say could put someone in jail. Not only that, but you subject yourself to perjury if you lie. And uh, perjurers are, are not nice people. This guy takes the oath, and he said he went up to this car where this black fellow was sitting, and he knocked on the window, and he said the black gentleman, right off the bat, I knew we were going to have a problem because when he called Manny Baker a gentleman, I knew that there was something awry. And, uh, Disingenuous. I, the, right. The, the antenna went up. I said, okay, we're going to hear a dilly on this one. He said, uh, 
Uh, I said, uh, would you mind stepping out? And, and the fellow said, certainly. Well, Manny Baker wouldn't say certainly to a cop if it was the last cop on earth. But that's what the officer testified to. He said, Mr. Baker stepped out of the car. And then uh, we asked Mr. Baker whether or not we could take the keys from the ignition. He said, certainly. Well, I know right off the bat that this guy's lying through his teeth. And But there's very little I could do about it. He's answering questions on direct examination. I haven't had a chance to cross him yet. Uh, we asked Mr. Baker whether he, we, he minded us going into the trunk of his car. He said, no, certainly do that. <laughs> and uh, we went into the trunk of his car and, and we saw this valise. And would you mind, sir, if uh, we open up the valise? And they found $162,000 in the, in the valise. And then we placed Mr. Baker under arrest. Mr. Goodman, they're lying. I said, Manny, whoa, wait a second. You've got to be quiet, you know. I have to listen to everything that's being said. And when you tell me they're lying, that doesn't do me any good. Uh, but they're lying, Mr. Goodman. I said, Manny, you know, uh, I'm not going to tell you again. Please let me do my job. But they're lying. Next cop. I swear to God to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth to help me. I look like, uh, you know, like the three Humpty Dumpties on the wall. They all look the same with their big old necks and their uh, faces were red and he took this, the oath, testified, hand in glove. This glove fit tighter than, uh, than the one the government wanted O.J. to be wearing, okay? <laughs> they're lying, Mr. Goon. I said, Manny, I'll tell you something. First of all, it doesn't matter whether they're lying or not because you're a black guy. You're a heroin dealer, and this judge doesn't like you, okay? And it's not going to do you any good that they're lying because this judge doesn't like you. But they're lying, Mr. Goodman. Next cop, same thing. I said, this is outrageous because, you know, it's one thing if they're testifying and their testimony is a little bit alike, but this is word for word. It's verbatim. They they practice this for a long, long time. I said, Judge, Mr. Baker has something he wants to tell me. He said, well, hurry up, Mr. Goodman. I was always, they always said, hurry up to me. Hurry up. And I said, okay, I'll hurry up. And I turned over, okay, Manny, we've got a little time out here. What could I do for you? He said, they're lying. I said, you made that very clear to me, buddy. <laughs> I, I don't think there's any doubt in anybody's mind other than the judge. Uh, that, uh, was this a jury trial? No, or? this is a motion to suppress. Because okay. if I win, then they can't use anything that they found against Manny. And he walks out of court. A, a heroin dealer walks out of court if I win this uh, because it was in violation, in my opinion, of the Fourth Amendment to the United States Constitution and not really a technicality. I don't think the Fourth <laughs> Amendment is a, which everybody says, well, Goodman always won on technicalities. I don't think the Fourth Amendment was a technicality. But um, he says, they're lying. I said, Manny? He says, I know they're lying. He said, you know that van? I said, what are you talking about, van? He said, you know, the van that they come to the uh, airport to pick up the, the pilot and the uh, flight attendants? I said, yeah. He said, well, they saw the whole thing. So what do you mean they saw the whole thing? Why didn't you tell me this? He said, I've been trying to tell you for three, three witnesses here that they're lying. So I said, Your Honor, I need a timeout. He said, what for? I said, I think I have something pretty important to bring to the court's attention, but I'm going to need at least 24 hours. He says, you have until 9 o'clock tomorrow morning and be ready to go then. Well, we get back to the office. I knew the flight because everybody knew what the flight was, where this fellow was flying in from San Diego. We knew the airline, American Eagle. And um, we called up American Eagle and we said, do you know the name of the pilot who was on this particular flight? They said, what do you want to know for? I said, we have to serve a legal document on the gentleman. And uh, if he would tell me his name and his phone number, it would be of great value. So they gave me the pilot's number and I called him up. He was in San Francisco. 
And he tells me what he saw and what he heard. And I said, would you be kind enough to come down to Las Vegas and testify in court? He said, well, I really don't want to, but if I have to, I will. Well, I said, you're going to have to, uh, but I want to do it nicely. I, I'm not going to. I'm not going to scream at you and yell at you. All I want you to do is to tell uh, the court what happened. So he gets down there, and I said, my first witness is pilot so-and-so. And he takes the same oath that the three cops took. He swore to tell the truth, too. Nothing but the truth helped me. He said, what I saw down there, he said, they went up to this car, all three of them. And there was this black guy in the car. I said, the gentleman sitting next to me. He said, that's right. And they opened up the door and they dragged this guy out and they threw him on the ground and they held his head down. They put his arms behind his back. They had a gun to his head. They put cuffs on him behind his back. They took the key out of the ignition. They, they said it was like Miami Vice. <laughs> well, that was the end of that case for the government. Now, a lot of people are going to say, how can you represent a drug dealer? Well, in my opinion, and people are entitled to disagree with me. That's, it's America, thank goodness. It's better to let Manny Baker go than to let three cops get away with lying. Did they get away with lying? Yeah, they sure did. They didn't get Manny. Because they didn't get the, the, the nothing consequences. Ha- nothing happened to them. They weren't charged with perjury. And that was the energy that kept me going every single day because I figure – If I could stop that from happening, I've done some good for America. And I don't want to hear that one guilty guy went through, uh, got uh, out of trouble when he shouldn't have, that uh, it was more important to put him away because it wasn't. But these cops didn't learn a lesson. You grew up in Philadelphia. Right. And your father was an attorney. He was a prosecutor. And you would think that an attorney for a father, that your affluence level was higher than average. I don't know what that means. Well, as in you're well, you weren't a poor kid. Oh, I, no, we were very middle class. Yeah. So middle class kids typically don't relate to the outlaws, to the outcasts, to the one, to the fringe players. Well, it's, meet, a, it's funny. What but do you I, think it is about well, your upbringing I don't that know. led you to? I, I went to law school at the University of Pennsylvania, yes. an excellent law school, Ivy League law school. It was a, an era, as I said, of the Warren Court uh, of the civil rights. That's when all the civil rights legislation was taking place. And. I was into that. The other guys in my class, and I say guys because in those days, women really didn't. I think I had two ladies in my entire law school class. Now, law school classes are more than 50 percent female, which is fine. But in those days, it it wasn't that way. Uh, They uh, they were all interested in going to what were referred to as white shoe law firms, Mm -hmm. which were your big respected lawyers who did corporate work, who did contracts, who did estates. That wasn't for me. Matter of fact, when, why though? I don't know why. I don't know why. I didn't like those courses. I was interested in uh, the rights of individuals. Uh, I don't know why. Be- because, correct me if I'm wrong, let's say it's the late 80s. So you've been successful for 20 years at this point. Right. I started practicing in Nevada in 1965. And it would seem at that point you'd be the toast, or not the toast of the town, but you'd be at the highest echelon of the social strata in town. I'm guessing because of the people you associated with, the people you defended, how much of an advocate you were, you weren't as inside as you could have Well, uh, let, let's get that straight right off the bat. My wife had said to me, and thank God for her because she had a much more level head than I have and has. She said, you know, you lose your value to your clients if judges think that you're one of them. In other words, if judges think that I'm the consigliere for the mob, uh, if they think that I'm a shyster, I don't do my clients any good. The one thing I had going 
for me with judges is I think I always told them the truth. I certainly intended to. I think they respected me and took me at my word and I was credible. And what she was saying was don't associate with your clients, represent them, celebrate when you win. Nothing wrong with that, but don't run away uh, every night as many of your colleagues do and start drinking with them. Other defense attorneys. Yeah, unfortunately, uh, or uh, have the martini lunches uh, where uh, they don't know where they are in the afternoon when they're supposed to be representing somebody's rights. She says, don't be like that. Uh, Be yourself and and be legit, so to speak. So that stood me in good stead. I uh, uh, I did not as- associate with my clients other than to prepare for court. I-, I wasn't running around with them. I wasn't sharing the ladies with them. And it was very tempting because I did come from a staid background, a pretty conservative background. Not so because- the contrast was? Well, let's put it this way. Everybody, when I came out to Las Vegas, had a nickname. There was a wingy. There was a lefty. There was a hunchy. <laughs> I mean, uh, we'll uh, get the lefty. But, uh, but that was uh, that was romantic. It was almost Damon Runyon-esque. And they all had big bank rolls and they all had beautiful women around them. And the women were dripping with jewelry and and fur coats, even in this desert. And it was pretty impressive for a young lawyer to see that kind of stuff. And I I could have gone that way uh, very easily, uh, but for having a wife who really kept me on the straight and narrow. Tony Spilatro, there was a personal relationship. Well, he was a client that I spent about every single day from, I think, 1972 to the time he was killed in 1987 with him, defending him of murders and racketeering and all sorts of offenses. So uh, there was a very close bond between us. I didn't realize how much time I spent with him until after he got murdered. Uh, Then I knew uh, because there was a void in my life. I, I didn't have him to represent at the time. And there was a lot of empty hours where I wasn't preparing cases that I had to prepare and making sure that he did not go to prison unjustly. And to be quite frank with you, he never was convicted when I was his lawyer over all those years. Uh, The only conviction he ever had was before he even came out to Las Vegas. uh, It was an application on a a loan application where a judge, and I'm not sure whether he sentenced him to a dollar. I think your book said a dollar. Well, I'm not sure because (laughs) it it may have been a consecutive sentence of uh, two (laughs) dollars. Uh, but but that was it. That, that was it. I, 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 but listening to the government, he killed 26 people, not 25, not 27, <laughs> always 26. But Tony was different in that, like you said, all those, I mean, we're not talking months, we're talking decade plus. Right. But I had a lot of clients who I represented uh, for a long time over the years. And um, uh, I, I, I spent, you know, whatever time was necessary to properly prepare. But if anybody wants to say that I was out running around with Tony Spilatro, they're lying to you because oh, no, no, and, and well, which would not be a bad thing, but it wasn't my thing. Yeah, and but like for uh, maybe your daughter, and I'm going from recollection from the book, but he was at family events, like absolutely. Department. So were other clients. Yeah. So and again, all I'm saying is, it seems like that that demarcation between not being one of the boys was important to you, but there were people that you connected with enough that it did become a friendship. Oh, well, you it's its interesting. Um, I can't think of a client that I ever represented that I didn't like. Now, was that your choice? If a guy came in, you didn't like him, you said, no, thank you? I liked everybody. I mean, uh, I wasn't judgmental. That wasn't my job as a lawyer. My job as a lawyer was to make sure the rights were protected. And, you know, if I didn't do that, then they were going to be hurt. And uh, sometimes when I did do it, they were hurt. But And I, I never – I didn't like to lose. I'm a very competitive person. Uh, so that was always in my, my makeup and not losing. But uh, there's no question. As a matter of fact, 
uh, a couple of my clients were placed in what's called the list of excluded persons or the black Which, book. The, so the black book is something you believe that the authorities have, were particularly egregious with, with the unfairness of it. Uh, it's not even close. I, I mean, it's, it's, it's a joke. And they were a joke as far as I'm concerned uh, to put somebody in a book based on a newspaper article. It, it wasn't based on some nexus with an illegal act in a casino. That, that would make sense to me. If they're, so, if they're cheating at bars, you know, jackpots, sure. you bar them then. That's that, that's appropriate. But because uh, somebody said Spilatro killed 26 people and you put him in the black book and I fought it and I won. And then I was reversed and I fought it and I won and I was reversed until finally they put him in the black book after eight years of deciding it at the state Supreme Court. And I had a state Supreme Court judge tell me that the FBI had gone to him at least and said, you better not let Spilacho out of this black book or else we're going to start investigating you and the rest of the judges up here. Well, when I hear that, I go nuts, okay? Because I didn't play the game that way. I try to play it straight. And uh, they use those kind of tactics. Uh, they were my clients. I knew them. They were the people with whom I associated, not socially. And when I had a family event, uh, I did invite them because uh, not to have invited like them to all cl all clients or the most. ones you were closest with. Well, the ones I'm closest, uh, you know, a client who came in and hired me the day before. I'm not going to ask to a, a party, but uh, uh, I, I invited them. And then uh, we, we had a party for my daughter that I invited them to because uh, of all my clients. Spilacho was pretty good whenever I was out of town and most of my cases were out of town. He would call my wife and say, can I do anything for you? Are you OK? And I appreciated that. And uh, when my daughter had a, a birthday party, he would buy her a little gift and bring it to her. And I appreciated that, too. Uh, so I'm not going to insult him. Uh, but it was so stupid because we had this party up at Mount Charleston, which is about 40 miles outside of Las Vegas. And I invited Supreme Court justices. I invited uh, United States senators. <laughs> uh, I invited uh, a state uh, assemblymen, state senators, judges. I mean, I invited everybody. I invited some clients. And uh, they all came up, and at the foot of Mount Charleston, uh, the FBI was there. Oh, a little Godfather one. Oh, taking <laughs> license plate numbers. And a couple of these judges missed a good party because they turned around and went home. They you, didn't go up didn't to the top. You didn't pull Sonny, did you, and go out and spit on the FBI's uh, bat? <laughs> no. I, uh, look, I'm respectful, I'm respectful for the position. Uh, I, I didn't dislike the FBI as an institution. Yeah because of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, and they're very important to protecting the rights of citizens. I just objected to them when they violated the rights of citizens. Half the time, I didn't know who was wearing the white hats or who was wearing the black hats. I've, I'm an aficionado of Vegas. I've been here 19 years, but for you, that's just the beginning. You're just a baby, You're right. just a baby. But I've read a massive amount. Here's what I don't understand. Almost every person talks about the power working against them behind the scenes. Now, a guy like you would, you would think decades as a leading defense attorney, the mayor, you know, for 12 years, now the husband of the mayor, you would think you are the power, but it feels like there's always this discussion of this power behind the curtain. Who are those people? What is that power? Well, there are different kinds of power. Uh, law enforcement, of course, has a power as a result of the power which has been endowed upon them, to be honest with you. Uh, the, the, there are moguls who are out on the strip who own these uh, 
big hotel and casinos. So the casino owners, is that the real power? Well, if it was a battle of power, who wins in Nevada, maybe in 1980 and maybe today? Because maybe it's different. Well, it's different because in 1980, there was uh, basically the hotel casinos were owned by people who were not licensed. Uh, It was hidden ownership, and they had straw people who were uh, fronting for them. Uh, Many uh, Las Vegas uh, was what was called an open city. Uh, the mafia, organized crime, the, the mob, the outfit, whatever you want to call it, uh, they uh, uh, had a meeting and they decided amongst themselves, the five families, which were basically out of New York, that controlled other parts of the country like Chicago or Milwaukee or the like. They decided Las Vegas was open. And if a family wanted to come out and own one of these casinos, they, whoever was there first could own it and they wouldn't be bothered by other families. And that's uh, those folks were uh, basically of Italian extraction, and they owned the various hotels like uh, uh, the Tropicana and the Stardust, and uh, just one after another after another. And they hired uh, Jewish people and Irish people to run it for them. And it was the Jewish people and the Irish people who got the licenses uh, because uh, they're the ones who represented that they owned the hotel and certainly did not disclose the fact that there was hidden ownership. So now, uh, th- those people. The mob people, they were the power, but nobody knew it mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. Uh, they controlled. And most. they controlled the politicians. Uh, I'm sure they were very generous with the politicians. Now, you have the Mob Museum, Correct. which is a – my mom was just in town. It's phenomenal. She, she went down there, loved it. Phenomenal. I just, I just came from uh, the board meeting, and it gets bigger and better every single day. And uh, we're talking about things that – I never dreamed of when I suggested that we have a mob museum. I, it, it's something that is totally beyond my imagination as to the job that they've done uh, with the board creating uh, what we have down there. It, it's, it's really a real museum, and it's ranked within the top 20 museums in the United States. Wow, that, that, that is impressive. Now, at the beginning, there was the typical doubts of, oh, is this going to be anti-Italian? Well, it's anti you made the joke – hey, there's going to be so many Jewish people in here. You guys are going to be you're one gonna, more Italian. Right. Well, it, it got a little hairy there. I, uh, uh, I got a lot of pressure because they said, oh, Oscar's building a monument to himself. Oscar's building a <laughs> monument to his clients. And I'm saying, you know, you could all drop dead as far as I'm concerned. But uh, there was a segment of the Italian-American population that felt that they were going to be demeaned and that uh, it would affect them. And they were very upset about it. So. I said, wait, let me go and let me talk to the, the group. And it was a very legitimate group. It's a group uh, of uh, Italian-Americans who uh, uh, raise money to give scholarships to uh, young Italian-American students when they go on to school. And a lot of very prominent people in Las Vegas belong to this. And I went into the room, and it was hostile. I mean, if uh, they had a rope and <laughs> a, a gallow, uh, I know who would be swinging from it. And uh, it was so bad that I said, um, what did you think I said here? What, what, what do you think I, I'm proposing that we build? They said a mob museum. I said a mob museum? I never said that. I said a mop museum. <laughs> I said we're going to have brooms and, and we're going to have uh, vacuum cleaners. It's going to be a – well, with that, I, I, uh, they cracked a smile and I left. But um, now uh, the, it, one, of the, one of my old clients, Vinny Ferrara, who uh, the government uh, – gave him the appellation of the animal. They never, never said it to his face, but they said it behind his back, Vinny the animal. He came out to the opening of the Mob Museum, and I didn't know he was going to be in town. He's out in the audience, and he's waving at me. And was, was he a Boston guy? Boston guy, yeah, with a patriarchal crime family. 
And he, uh, he says, um, can I go in after we went through the ribbon cutting? I said, sure, it's America, Vinny. You could go in. Well, he's in for an hour, and he comes out, and he says, Oscar, <laughs> Oscar, I'm so mad at you. Well, uh, there are a lot of people who I wouldn't mind being mad at me. I did not want Vinny to be mad at me. Vinny was one person I did not want to be mad at me. I said, why, Vin? He said, Oscar. He says, I'm not in the museum. <laughs> I said, I promise you, Vinny, I pro- we're going to have a nice big picture of you at the museum. He says, make sure you do it, Oscar. That's a pretty good Boston accent. I can't lie. Not bad. Lie. I was Not practicing that Not one. bad. Now, do you feel like the government made it personal with you? And, and I, I want to talk about that at two levels, and you can go any go order you want. Number one, vendettas. Because I believe on the sports betting side, and we'll get to your love of sports betting, is Billy Walters, mm-hmm. and you mentioned him a little bit in your book, went right. to the Kentucky Derby. Right, and, had a great time with him. And, you know, a guy that by 60 Minutes accounts was worth, and again, this has been a few years ago, $300 million, super successful. We had him on our ESPN show uh-huh. a couple of years ago, did a live interview with him. It felt like the government was going to go after him. Well, they, they did. Him. They did. They, uh, they went after him, and then they went after him, and they went after him, and... Is it personal? Was it Within? personal? Oh, absolutely. Uh, uh, once he beat them, uh, and you'll find a pattern here, once, once a defendant is successful in his defense and the government feels that um, uh, he shouldn't have been, uh, uh, they keep on looking. And uh, they finally got uh, Billy convicted back in New York. Uh, Billy is a very interesting guy. Uh, he's street smart. Um, Elliot Price, who was a client that I represented from Boston, uh, that where I made the first dent and the gaming control laws here, uh, where uh, he was working at a little sports book called the Churchill Downs out on the Strip. Now, this was the standalone well, books. Yeah, they weren't yeah, even in casinos. That's correct. It wasn't the big, magnificent race button sports books like we have today, but a little hole-in-the-wall place. Uh, Elliot um, was there when there was a raid, and they took his sheriff's card, and they wouldn't let him go back to work because he had to have a sheriff's card in order to work in the gaming industry. And I went to court, and it was the first time that the gamers got beat on anything uh, the court ordered that he get his card back and he'd be allowed to work. And the state went up to the Supreme Court, and I won there too. So I was successful there. They, they don't forget. I mean, uh, once you beat them, the, they'll keep on they'll keep on coming after you. And that's basically what they did with Billy. I mean, the fellow who testified against him, the owner of the company that supposedly gave him the insider information, this guy was – he testified he uh, – Ripped off money from his company in order to pay prostitutes. I mean, I mean, it, the, he ended up looking like a real scumbag, whereas Billy was a, a wily old fox. And I don't know uh, what happened. I did not represent Billy on that one, but um, they, they must. Uh, they, they wanted Billy. I think. I think you're absolutely right. And oh, I know I'm right. <laughs> and I know I'm right. Uh, you know, they conducted um, when I was representing him. They conducted a search of certain safety deposit boxes that were in Billy's name. This wasn't a, a big secret down at the Horseshoe Casino where he, what year was this? Oh, geez. Early on, I got to say in the late, uh, I'd say early eighties. Oh, so the computer group and this yeah. was at the very beginning, right in the yeah. beginning. Yeah. And, uh, they, um, they kept the money and they didn't charge him. Then they uh, called a grand jury. And I called up the prosecutor and I said, look, the guy knows that you, you, you have his money. He's not going anyplace. If you ever would indict him, give me a call and I'll surrender him. You know, he was a citizen here, very generous guy. 
Yes. And he was the lead fundraiser uh, for Opportunity Village. He was a, a very, very generous guy. And they, uh, uh, they had no reason to believe that he was going to go anyplace. And uh, one day I get a phone call from him. Uh, Ten years had gone by, by the way, from the time they had seized the money. So they had the money the whole time? The whole time. They wouldn't give it back to him. He finally got it back, but they wouldn't give it back to him during the ten years. Uh, they, they arrested him in the middle of the night, uh, took him out of his home in his pajamas, took his wife out of the home in her bathrobe. And um, I called up and I screamed and I yelled. I called him every name in the book. I said, all you had to do was call me and I would bring him down. You didn't have to embarrass him. Well, we were afraid that he would find out. Find out. The Stinkin' Review Journal, which is our local stinking newspaper, was on his driveway and the headlines were, Billy Walters indicted. Yeah, they would have found out from the feds giving it to the paper. So, see, that's the kind of thing that kept me young. Because of the passion to counter. Because I that. couldn't stand them. I couldn't stand the paper. I still can't stand the paper. I can't stand the publisher of the paper. So, with the paper. Oh, you won't let me talk about this guy? He's not, not a nice man. He's a misanthrope. You know what a misanthrope is? It's someone who doesn't like people. Well, you're about as close as they get. He's a hater, okay? And this guy uses his uh, paper for his own personal good. No, they can't no, sue who you. Are we talking about? They're not going to uh, Sheldon Adelson. They're not going to sue you, but uh, because of the truth. And thank goodness in this country, truth is a defense. Talk about power, billionaire Adelson. Billionaire, but uh, you know, money doesn't buy class. No, no doubt. He just bought the paper in the last few years. Though, right, right, and he uses it for his own personal uh, good because he doesn't like the convention authority because he has his own convention uh, hall, and uh, you know, he, he starts uh, his vendetta. And the headline it was a complete lie when it pertained to me, at least. And uh, I, I'm, I'm no sh- a shrieking violet still. But when they say that I was being chauffeured around uh, on uh, taxpayer dollars. Now, this has been within the last few weeks. Yeah, they're full of crap. Uh, there's only, and uh, for people who are listening that may not be Nevadans, you should come to Las Vegas. And you should live in Nevada because we have a great tax structure here. No tax. There is no personal income tax, Okay. Uh, it's a good place to die because there's no estate tax. The only taxes we have is a little property tax and uh, sales tax. So it's a great place. The monies that are used for the convention authority are from the room tax, and nobody who lives here pays any of that. But that's what the headline was, and I can't stand a lie. I can't stand a lie. I haven't changed in that respect. Prior to Adelson buying the paper, it sounds like you didn't like the review. I don't like him, no. As a matter of fact, I'll tell you. Just generally, what was problematic before? What was problematic when I filed for uh, mayor, uh, the stinking review journal, their headline was on a Sunday editorial, anybody but Oscar for mayor. They didn't know me from Adam, but they started the same. Oh, he represents bad people. Mm. He 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 stops uh, people who kill twenty six so people. You would think a liberal. Typically, newspapers are liberal. Not, not this not, paper. This paper was it was he, run he, by prior, uh, prior the, alt, the alt right before there was an alt right. Wow. Okay. And we'll be talking about you were a Democrat for the first. Well, not true. So no, no. I came out here as a Republican. You uh, came out as a Republican, right? My wife and I were both Republicans, and uh, Dick Bryan that time was in my law office. And he said, Oscar, uh, I'd like to run for state assembly. I said, great, Dick. I I wish you well. He said, you could do me a favor, though, because the only race that means anything in Clark County, where we are in Las Vegas, uh, was uh, the the, the Democratic primary. He said, would you mind changing to Democrat? So I said, I care less. Uh, Became Democrat so he could vote for Dick. Became, you know, governor, became United States senator. Not a bad fellow to, to know a little bit. And uh, a good guy, Dick, uh, 
uh, went on, and uh, we were Democrat. Then when I was the mayor, Carolyn, my dear wife, said to me, she said, you know, wouldn't it be nice if you were nonpartisan? When somebody came in to see you, you didn't have to think to yourself, are they R, are they D, which I never did anyhow, but at least I had the appearance of doing that. It's a great idea. So I became a, a nonpartisan. But this was after your second re-election, right? Uh, I'm not sure whether it's the first or second. See, the office itself is a nonpartisan position. So when, oh, you, okay. when oh. you vote for mayor, you're not voting for Republican or Democrat. Is that, yeah. is that typical across the country? No, no, oh, okay. no, no. Uh, ordinarily, it's a party, uh, a, a, oh, par- a, a party race, but not here in Nevada. So when you became mayor, and we're going to get to that for sure, a lot of great stuff and accomplishments. I'm talking too much. No, no, I love it. I haven't drunk at all. Listen, we've got— Are we on TV? Well, we have a video going. Are you you filming this? Okay, well, I want you to see this. This is the most important (laughs) thing that we're going to do. The showman. This is the best. Wait a second. You see this? This is a jalapeno. And what I do, uh, I always have my Bombay Sapphire, which is right over here, with a jalapeno. And the truth of the matter, folks, is, if you're watching this, from here to here, it's mellow, okay? You you, you become very, very soft-spoken and very cool. From here to here, you lose the touch in your fingers and your toes. So I'm going to start going that path right now. I'm I'm, (laughs) I'm starting the journey. And I will say this, Mr. Goodman, is... You're 78, is that correct? I am. I think. That's the rumor. I, I like, think Wikipedia says I that. feel like I'm 22. <laughs> and I, when you actually had to think a second about Opportunity Village, yes. it's like one out of 100 things you say you even have to think for a second. I know. Well, I have so many it's charities amazing. on my mind. No, but what I'm saying is people who are 35. That's their problem. And no, it's this stuff. That's what I'm saying. The it's, gin, it, the gin makes that, your brain cells grow. I mean, it's it, it's really impressive. It, it's it's wonderful. Are you kidding me? Every time I have a drink at night, I, f- I feel I'm getting smarter. When you became or ran for mayor, yes. what struck me was you said one of the reasons you wanted to get out of law practice was the pressure you felt about potential entrapment, about being watched. So think about this: these people are willing to lie. They feel like the ends justify the means. You were so effective for your clients. Did you worry that they just throw a kilo of cocaine in the back of your car? I mean, how would you really defend yourself? Not, it's pretty hard to defend against something like that that's exactly. that, that blatant. No, what they did was, um, uh, for instance, they had sent uh, an informant to my office and he was wired up. Now, there's an amazing movie that I actually watched last night. That was a it looked like it was something, a profile of you initially. And then it was and I think it's called Mob Life. Mob Law. Mob Law. Yeah. Were you part of the financing of that? Or no, were you just no, a participant? no, no. It made no. you look very good. Well, it was a documentary which yeah. was produced by two fellas from uh, London uh, in conjunction with um, uh, a New York station. It was so like a, for PBS or something. Basically, it, it was going to be. Uh, they said it was going to go into the movie theaters as a, a docudrama, so to speak. Yeah. It was very successful in London, was not commercially successful here in the States. We did have the opening of the movie. 
uh, here in uh, Las Vegas, very well attended because everybody. Were you happy how it turned out? Yeah, why not? It made you look great. Well, I am great. They had you pulling up in your Mercedes. I was great in those days. I still have that Mercedes. (laughs) That Mercedes was given to me by a client. I I thought for a minute, honestly, that you maybe funded it. It was like, no, 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 no. I did not fund it. I'm probably the cheapest person I know. (laughs) At the very end of the movie, you and this agent had this confrontation. That was real. It was amazing. It It was a real thing. His name is Rick Bacon. Uh, he went under the uh, pseudonym of uh, Rick Calise. He infiltrated Spilatro's confidences. Uh, when they were making the movie, they uh, brought him from the state of Washington, where he was growing apples. He left the FBI down to the desert to film a confrontation. We hadn't seen each other in, I think, 15 years at the time. I did not like him, and I think he liked me even less than I disliked him. Now, you mentioned in that scene that you had been thinking of this had been bothering every, you for every, like 15 years. Every moment of every day of my life because he tried wow. because he tried to entrap me. He had come to my office with Spilatro and he tried to get me to uh, represent him, claiming that the FBI had gone, this is his story, his tale, the FBI had gone to him and uh, said that uh, if uh, the, he, he cooperates with the FBI and gives them Spilatro on a platter, uh, they will... Uh, protect him. If not, they have information where Spilatro is going to kill him. So he says, what should I do, Oscar? And here's Spilatro, who's a pretty tough guy. So you had never met this fellow? At this I, oh, I'd seen him around. He was but, uh, always hanging out at the gold rush. But which, not a client. No, not a client. And uh, he said, what should I do? And I turned to Tony, who was sitting there next to him. And Tony was a pretty tough guy. And <laughs> I said, I know you brought him up for me to help this guy, but I can't do it, Tony. He said, what do you mean can't do it? I said, Tony, I can't help him because it'd be a conflict of interest. The government's saying they're going to protect him. You're going to kill him. And they want him to uh, testify against you. And for me to tell him not to, in my opinion, would be to obstruct justice. So what I'll do, I'll give them the name of three great lawyers. I give him the name of the finest lawyers in the United States, a fellow who had represented DeLorean and got an acquittal. He was one of the names. Another guy who was uh, one of the finest lawyers in the world from Los Angeles and another lawyer who was a great lawyer from San Diego. So nobody these were local guys. No, nobody, they, because they, they, would, they would say that I controlled these guys. And it, that it, was his accusation. Of course he, it was. But he said that I was sending him to somebody to obstruct justice, that they were going to be my uh, sort of agent to make sure he wasn't going to testify. And that was nonsense. And that's what I told him, too. And it was a heated discussion in the desert. Matter of fact, my wife thought that if either of us were armed, uh, we would have shot the other one. Yeah, you, That's how much hatred there was. I mean, yeah. the camera was on you. They, and you I hated see him. Yourself trying I to hated him. Control. I hated him. But you want to know something? He hated me just as much as I hated him because he really believed I was the prince of darkness, that I was 666, and that I was a bad, bad guy. Another one who said, Spalatro killed 26 people. How can you represent a guy like that? And I said, you want to know something, Rick? You were in the business of getting people who killed 26 people, and he never spent a day in jail. So who's right and who's wrong? And that shut him up for about half a second. You've talked about the evolution of the authorities of the FBI. The people who were the principals back in the day, have they come around? Have they, I mean, this guy didn't as of, the, what was the Let's movie, put, maybe 96, 97? Something like that. Yeah. So had you had any other dealings with this fellow no. since that scene? No, not, not a single one. No, I haven't did seen him. Did it stop bothering you? Or did yeah, that I got it off my chest to call him a punk. And But has anyone looked back in hindsight and said, Oscar, boy, we really were wrong the way we No, they never apologized for anything, these people. Forget it. Unbelievable. Arrogant. 
last thing wrapping up the mob stuff. The mob? Have we been talking about the mob? A little bit. A little bit. There's no mob. Oh, yeah. oh, wait, that's true. I heard your mom saying that in that movie. No, my she mother. Goes, my mother goes, Oscar says there is no organized crime. No, my mother, my mother, may her soul rest in peace. The greatest woman, in my opinion, other than my wife who ever lived, she, she was something. She said she's being interviewed, I think, for 60 minutes. And uh, Mike Wallace asked her something about Oscar. And she says, all I could tell you is Oscar's, Oscar's clients never hurt anybody. They just killed each other. That was their honor, is the way she explained well, it. Well, she also said that they took us to the best restaurants. Now, Caroline was in that scene watching your mom talk, and yeah. you could tell she was, like, yeah, worried well, what she was going to say. Yeah, she, for some reason, my wife worried about us. <laughs> right. I know you've answered this before, but in the book, there's been a follow-up that I don't think I've heard you answer this since, you being scared. And I know you've always said, no, no, no. no. But in 2008, it came out that there was potentially a hit on you. Oh, well, I found out about that afterwards. Uh, the FBI had information from a fellow who was a bad, bad guy, Frankie Schweiz, Frankie the German, where uh, he uh, was arrested and he was trying to make a deal for himself. And they debriefed him and he said that uh, he had an Uzi and he was going to kill Spilacho and his brother and me. And the FBI never came to me with that uh, story, but that didn't surprise me. Were they me. obligated to? Well, I would law? think that if uh, they have a reliable information that there's going to be a hit on you, that they yeah, would, would, tell, would tell the citizen that maybe he should watch himself. But I had other clients who uh, were hurt, uh, and the FBI had that information within their files and never went to the other clients. And uh, th that's just the way it was in those days. So in hindsight— I don't think it would happen today. I really don't. In hindsight, do you feel like your lack of fear maybe was— a naivete in a way? No. Um, my clients needed me. As I said before, when we started, that I was the only thing that really stood between them and, you know, an electric chair or a lethal injection or, or uh, a long prison sentence. So uh, they, they, uh, they respected me. I, I had no fear with them. I, I mean, I have some stories, which uh, I can't tell you I wasn't concerned. I was representing a young man up in Battle Mountain, which is up north uh, in Nevada on a murder case, and he was a biker. And uh, he was charged with killing a biker from an opposing biker gang. Uh, I checked into a little motel, because that's all they had up in Battle Mountain, the day before I had to go to court. My client was in custody at the time. I was going to meet him at the courthouse. And um, I hear uh, the sound of motors. And I'm saying, what, what, what is this all about? And all night long, the... And you were just by yourself. I was by myself. These motorcycles went around and around and around. I could tell you that I was a little concerned. <laughs> I also represented in another case a fellow who owned a brothel uh, up in Lathrop Wells, which is, I guess, about 60, 70 miles from here. And he had some problems uh, uh, with a biker. He apparently was charged with killing uh, a, a rival biker. And uh, the highway patrol, they were nice to me. They called me. They said, Mr. Goodman, I know you're supposed to be in court, but you better not go up there because they're going to hurt you. I said, no, nah, no one's going to hurt me. Uh, they said, well, here. And they handed me a, um, uh, a bulletproof vest. I had never worn a bulletproof vest in my life. I said, this doesn't do any good if they shoot you in the head, does it? So uh, what made you feel like they're not going to hurt me? I just uh, I, I just you had navigated so much. No, nah, I, I had other things on my mind to me which were more important. Uh, so if you knew for a fact your life was at risk. 
let's just say no, that I, I, putting I, odds on it, it was a 10% chance, you would have still done it because you thought uh, what you were doing was so important. No, uh, that would be really arrogant on my part. I just didn't concern myself with that kind of stuff. And, you know, if uh, something's going to happen, I'm a great believer in fatalism. Something's going to happen, it's going to happen. You don't ask for it. But uh, one time, I got to tell you, I thought this was a pretty good story. I was representing a fellow down in Tyler, Texas, of all places, a home of, I think, the Kilgore Rangerettes, uh, right in that area. I know they had an Air Force base out there, and I think it was Hood Air Force Base, if I'm not mistaken, Fort Hood. And um, I was representing a fellow who was charged with robbing a federal bank down there. And he had already been punished because when he was trying to get away, uh, the uh, security guards uh, shot him and uh, it caused him to lose uh, both of his legs. So he, he comes uh, into court uh, in a wheelchair, and I figured I had a little bit going for me because down in Texas, the juries, uh, they come back with a penalty, and the judge does not impose the penalty. Well, he imposes it, but the jury comes back with the recommendation, which the judge follows. But uh, I still remember the name of the place. I checked into the Golden, e- Golden Eagle Hotel. For some reason, it's always bikers who are uh, out there annoying me. And um, – <laughs> Once again, I'm hearing the vroom, vroom. I said, oh, what do we have here? Well, <laughs> here we go again. the bikers are just going right around the Golden Eagle. So I go up to the room, and I figure, look, they're not going to bother me in the room. It's a little old room, and I take off my uh, shirt and hang up my pants and go into the restroom to brush my teeth. And in the sink, I had never seen these before in my life, were body crabs. You ever hear crabs? Yes. Well, I saw them. I had never seen them before. And I said, I don't know. How I can, big were I can, they? I, they were big crabs. And I, uh, I said, I can't handle this. I mean, that, that's, that's, the crab scared me. <laughs> so I went back into the room, and this, I, I, I said to myself, what am I going to do? I'm not going to go downstairs because then they'll come in from outside, and I could get hurt. So that night I stood in one place in the bedroom the entire <laughs> night, not moving until I had to go to court the next day. You have a quote that says law enforcement won when it comes to they the, did. the mob. And absolutely. The absolutely. But obviously now there's another generation, right? There's Russians, there's Mexicans. Oh, it's a whole different, it's a whole different ball game now than it was. Do you have any sense of that culture? Because you've ta- your mom talked about the honor. Oh, when I talk about the mob um, in my day, I'm talking about what was uh, known as the mafia. Or La Cosa Nostra. Uh, th- that's what I think of mobsters in and my Italians, day. mostly. Well, you had to be uh, of uh, Italian or Sicilian uh, descent in order to be a, a, a real uh, member of the mafia. So the Jewish mobsters or whatever. No, they, they, were, they were associates. They, they, associates. Yeah, wannabes, associates, that kind of thing. Correct me if I'm wrong. Some of them were real yeah, Meyer, power bros. Meyer, Meyer, Meyer Lansky was yeah. a client of mine. Uh, he was the financial genius behind the mob, but he was Jewish. And uh, his partner was Lucky Luciano, who was Italian. And uh, uh, Meyer Lansky could never be a member of the mafia because he de- didn't qualify. He had to be uh, of Italian extraction. In the Godfather book, they don't have it in the movie as much. Tom Hagen was adopted in Irish. Correct. And they called him the Irish gang because the Corleone. He, he, he could not, uh, he, he uh, was, was the consigliere, but not the real McCoy. So with the Russians, the Mexicans, the mob, or, or the organized crime, let's call right. it, the sense is that the, the ruthlessness today, that I mean, as ruthless as the worst of the Italians were, it seems like it's another level now. I, I think that um, when the, the, quote, mafia members uh, killed somebody, they did it for a reason. 
they I could identify the person, uh, uh, whether the reason was a good reason, if there's ever a good reason to kill somebody. Uh, they thought they had it, uh, whereas today I think uh, th- there's an animalistic uh, side of uh, the criminals who will kill randomly, uh, not care whether they're involved in a drive-by shooting and uh, hit some poor uh, woman who's uh, wheeling her baby down the street. I-, I think there is a difference. I think there's a certain difference in the morality of the criminal of today and the criminal back then. You've talked about how with immigrants and those at the bottom of the social strata that back then organized crime, or at least being on the periphery, allowed them to engage with society, to be the generation before the generation that went to school and all that. Couldn't the case be made if it was ghetto with African-Americans, if it was you know, new immigrants, that that's their mentality too, though maybe they're not executing on it not execution, no pun intended, but maybe they're not living it as righteously. No, but- no, I don't think so. I think that um, the, the the immigrant of today, and, and that's why I, I sort of, uh, I don't get a kick out of it, but I, I follow this immigration issue uh, pretty closely. I think uh, they come to this country for a better life, and uh, they they take jobs uh, that other people may not want to take. Yeah, many of uh, jobs are menial in nature, and they try to work themselves uh, uh, into at least a, societal position where they're able to have a family here. Uh, and hopefully someday, I hope we will have a way to make sure that everybody pays their taxes and uh, qualifies as an American and, and pledges their fealty towards our flag. Uh, but uh, I, I don't think uh, back in those days, anybody even thought of things like that. Uh, like the mob museum really is the story of America. Uh, uh, the average person who came over on a boat, they were in steerage. They came here. They usually had a family member who would sponsor them. There weren't any jobs for them. They, they took a job as a, a chimney sweep. They took a job as a garbage man uh, just to make a buck and to pay uh, the relative who was uh, responsible for them and bringing them over a little bit of money to live in the house. Uh, and then they began to assimilate. And uh, part of the jobs that they could get in those days were to carry a gun and, and to represent some mobster. And a lot of the original... Organized crime was built around politics where the immigrants maybe didn't even speak English so well. That's true. And they could deliver the blocks, right? The ward boss. Absolutely. Uh, Tammany Hall in uh, New York City was basically uh, built on the back of immigrants who were there and uh, uh, working um, in illegal activities most of the time. But uh, they also were responsible to the ward healers who took good care of them, brought them the turkey at uh, Thanksgiving, that kind of thing. You had a fascinating comment in your book about guilty so juries and the judicial system guilty not guilty and you love the idea of not proven yeah well that's what's called a scottish scottish verdict uh, so often juries feel that somebody really did something wrong and feel that they really should be found guilty but they also felt that the, the government didn't do its job right uh, and uh, based on the uh, judge's instructions they invariably would come back with the not guilty and then go home and say geez I really shouldn't have let this guy go without some kind of a, uh, um, a mark on him. And the Scottish verdict allows them to come back with not proven, which is pretty interesting. It, I mean, it, it is. It's, not, it's, it's almost not, like it's, it's a civil standard. It, yeah, right? it, it's not It's not a resolution. It doesn't uh, put the issue to, to bed forever. But it sort of says uh, as a juror, you know, this guy doesn't deserve a medal that went to trial. But on the other hand, the government's not entitled to a conviction. So – We'll just come back and say not proven. The O.J. case, the original murder case, would seem to be a perfect example. Well, you know, uh, 
It's interesting. I had a phone call on that case. I had the second phone call, but I was fighting my contempt in the Rikiki case. So this was contemporaneous to that. Yeah, with Rikiki. And uh, that, if you want to know the year, that, 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 that would be the year. And I got, I was uh, back in uh, Boston. My wife says Philadelphia, but she's wrong. I was back in Boston <laughs> and um, I got a phone call from a fellow who represented himself to be the agent of OJ. And uh, they wanted to send me $25,000 to fly back and represent him. They told me that they had called Howard Weitzman and he turned it down. At what stage, who was on uh, no, the, the case at this well, point? Who was on the case? We're, we're sitting in front of the TV in our hotel room, and we're seeing the white uh, Suburban okay. going down the highway. That's so who Shapiro, was on the case. Shapiro maybe was there, but not Johnny Cochran. No yet. one was there. Oh, even Shapiro. Okay. Nobody. That, that car was uh, being chased. Okay. And uh, I said, I can't come out because I have my own problems, and I, I couldn't get involved in any other cases if I'm going to go to jail. Now, which, in hindsight, do you wish you were in the middle of that? Oh, you know, it's the case of the century. Uh, sure, I, I wish I was in a case like that, but um, I wasn't. And... Uh, uh, they then went to uh, uh, Robert Shapiro, a friend of mine, and then he brought in Johnny Cochran. He brought in F. Lee Bailey. And, and no, Kardashian, the Kardashian's father, that is correct. was the friend. He was their friend. Right. And, uh, you know, I knew all the lawyers in the case. I had done business with just about every one of them. F. Lee Bailey? Yeah, F. Lee Bailey. And uh, very friendly with his partner, Al Johnson. So, uh, I, And Johnny Cochran, as a matter of fact, before he died, he was opening up a law office here in Las Vegas. I don't know whether you were aware of that. Uh, he was like franchising, right, Johnny Cochran? Well, but, yeah, like but, but they gave a party for him here, and I went to the party, and I didn't realize how sick he was at the time, but he was in a wheelchair. He had oh, wow. brain cancer, as I understand. What year was this? Whenever it was. Yeah. I don't know. But, yeah. they, you know, they wanted me to get involved with the firm and that kind of thing. But I was – even though I've had people working in my law office all the time, I, I was sort of a loner and I, I like to sort of be by myself. So I wasn't about to form any relationships. But it was a – you know, the fellas who I knew in Los Angeles would talk to me about the OJ case. And they told me the the moment – that it was moved from Westwood, which is a very affluent section. I guess U, UCLA is there. And Brentwood, yeah. Brentwood, beautiful, beautiful area of Los Angeles. They said as soon as it was moved from Westwood to downtown L.A., they knew that O.J. would never be convicted. And I was on uh, the Rivera uh, Gerardo show, Gerardo Rivera show, the day the jury went out to uh, deliberate. And they had all the talking heads, and I was a stupid talking head along with the other st uh, stupid talking heads. And everybody said, guilty, guilty, real fast guilty. I said, I don't think so. I, uh, and, and Gerardo, he almost laughed at me. I said, you'll have a not guilty tomorrow. Wow, you said that. I, I mean, it wasn't a genius on my part. I'm just uh, reporting what all my friends were telling me. But look, I don't, obviously you were busy, right? And I was just out of college, so I was watching a lot of the trial. Yeah. And I had considered law school. So, you know, I have a finance degree. So I have a little bit of, you know, legal logic, I guess. And my thought was it's impossible to say that it's 99 plus percent that he did it. Maybe it's 70. Maybe it's 90. Maybe it's 95. Watching it at the distance that you did, would, what would you have voted? And I know it's hard to say because you To be honest? Yeah. I didn't watch it. I, I, was you, busy, I was busy taking care of my clients well, and earning true, a living. Uh, what am I going to do, watch TV? Well, I thought with a, a martini at night, you'd be no, watching No, no. My wife wasn't trying to kill me in those days. It does, <laughs> it does seem like the not proven <laughs> would have been a perfect situation. It could have been. Uh, and the reason I say my wife wasn't trying to kill me in those days, today, uh, every day I, I drink and I sit in front of my TV uh, with a bet on a game. And there's this big bowl of M&Ms that she puts in front of me. And um, I wake up the next morning and the bowl is empty. So you tell me, 
Is this death by chocolate or not? <laughs> Could be worse. You're listening to R.J. Bell's Dream Preview. Let's talk sports batting. Okay, now we're talking. You Something love- I know about. All right, so you say you bat pretty much all sports, the horses. Everything. Anything that moves. And a cockroach. Did start a, a cockroach. As a kid? I, yeah, I was in the schoolyard in Philadelphia. I must have been about third grade. Guy would come around the schoolyard. You pick three baseball players, uh, any three, to get six hits in one day and it paid 10 to 1. And you could bet as little as a dime. So were you betting or booking this? I was betting. I wish I had been booking it because I lost every dime that I bet. <laughs> it's amazing. You would think that you have to hit, wouldn't you? Three players, you could guy, you get guys who are batting 400 at the time. The odds have it that they're going to get. That's the best proposition is the one that seemed good, right? Forget about it. Forget <laughs> about it. Now, you've said table games are for suckers. Right. So... But you've also talked about how hard it is to win at sports betting that you typically don't. So how do you reconcile? Uh, because because uh, I, uh, I needed action. Always needed action in my life. So uh, that's where I get my action when I'm sleeping. During the day, I always had action, uh, a search and seizure, a motion to suppress, a subpoena, a trial, something, okay? Action. And at night, I had no action. I had to study for the next day. So my action was to bet a ball game, and now I bet every ball game. Now, would you you bet every game on the just board? about? I could show you some real sickness. I have it in my pocket. <laughs> I got my little my little sheet that everybody who knows me knows I carry around. As a matter of fact, I used to say to judges, "Judge, I need a timeout." And they said, "What's wrong, Mister?" I said, "I just need five minutes." So they figured I had to go to the restroom. I ran downstairs to the payphone <laughs> in order to get down on Chicago. Now, do you handicap actively more now Forget than you did? Forget about it. I, I'm the worst. Let's put it this way. My wife and I are in a local TV contest, and she told the people who are in charge of the contest, she said, whoever Oscar bets, just bet me on the other side. And <laughs> the she's going she's to she's win. So for you, it wasn't about – because a lot of really bright people like to beat something that seems unbeatable. Well, so it, it, is unbeatable. it is unbeatable. It wasn't an intellectual exercise for you. You just want oh, to Oh, no. You think you're going to win. You don't, you don't think you're throwing your money away. But, it, you know, day after day after day after day for uh, 78 years almost, you know you're not going to win. Did you – were you tempted to have like a Billy Walters give you stock? Like say, uh, hey, Billy, give me your best pick of the well, week. Well, it really wouldn't have mattered because uh, Billy – you know, Billy was a, a genius. And the way he, he, he had the computer group and – at any given moment, whatever he told me didn't necessarily have to be the way it was going to be uh, because uh, that line was moving and bouncing around and the like. So uh, Billy would have done well, it. Well, he was moving it around. Well, whatever. Uh, <laughs> uh, whatever. He, he wasn't guilty of any kind no, of gambling no, no, offense. No, no, he was no. found, found not guilty because he wasn't in the business of betting and wagering. And to he me, was a better. To me, the bookmakers being as fearful as they are, and, and I'll be honest, I think there's some great bookmakers, but I think a lot of them are not. Uh, courageous. They don't have gamble in them. They, they're not particularly bright. Well, Billy's ability out of fear of him to move numbers without having to bet a ton of money to me was the almost like judo, right? Use their weakness against them. Billy, Billy was very, very smart. And I knew uh, and represented at times the fellow who made the line, made the sporting Bob line. Martin, Bob Martin. And uh, Bob was a friend as well. And we used to we used to spend some time together just talking sports. He was so good, and there was a, a fellow who was working with him by the name of Ray Vera. They were so good at what they did and making the line that they couldn't, bet, they couldn't choose a side. That says it all, doesn't it? 
which is the adage is if a line isn't wrong, you can't beat it, right? You can only beat a line if it's wrong. Uh, well, uh, these guys made the line so so closely, they didn't know which side to bet. I think that segues really well into the idea of the people who were super talented that lived an alternative or unconventional life, like being an odds maker like Bob Martin versus people who were running casinos. Well, he was a college graduate. Yeah, oh, absolutely, which makes it even more I mean, he went to, I think he went to NYU. He was a very bright guy. So to become an odds maker would seem even more con- unconventional. It's, it's a mathematician, basically. No, I agree with you, okay. right? Yeah. Is But most of society wouldn't look at it that no, way, right? No, because they, like they like to put a label on something. Absolutely. As you look at the people that were the most talented in the unconventional world, versus the most talented people you met that were the CEOs of casinos and all that. And I think Bobby Baldwin, the poker player, was a rare example of a guy that lived both worlds, right? Won the World Series of Poker. Well, on- I'm, I'm not going to go under oath on this one, but I represented a fellow up in Oklahoma City by the name of Pody Poe. And Pody Poe had a poker game in his backyard in Nichols Hill, which is a very exclusive area in, in Oklahoma City. And uh, rumor has it, that Bobby used to play in the poker game uh, in Oklahoma City in the guy's backyard. And then he came out here and he befriended Steve Wynn, I believe. Steve recognized that he had talent. And, uh, you know, you can't do two things at once. So uh, he said, you can run this, you can run that for me. And Bobby's been very successful in the gaming industry. So like a guy like Ted Binion, yep. you said in the Smart, book, the smartest, smartest... The smartest street guy I ever met in my life. I mean, the dumbest human being I ever met in my life, too, because, you know, he was a drug addict and he would take heroin and that's not a nice thing to do. So he wasn't smart. But as far as uh, street smart and as far as figuring things out smart, he, uh, as smart a guy as I've ever, ever met. I've got a list of people and, you know, it's, it's going to be. You want like, me to rank their smartness? Yeah, well, in a way, almost, because what I was going to say is, you know, on that list, we've already talked about Billy Walters. We're talking about people. Billy's very smart. Yeah. It, just the idea of Ted Binion. And all I really know about him is the murder eventually. And that supposedly there was a prostitute involved that he was hanging with and well, she had a boyfriend. Like, I won't say that. And again, that's the way it was. Been yeah. But in the uh, Sandy Murphy, in my opinion, was no problem. Oh, okay. As a matter of fact, she was a pretty nice lady. Oh, and and again, I'm going by just you know okay. very little reading on it. Okay. But for a guy who is as smarter than anyone you've encountered yeah. to make those kind of mistakes, what's the disconnect? I don't know. I don't know. He would um, on Sunday mornings. He lived. Oh, I'd say five blocks from me. Five big blocks. Five long blocks. On Sunday morning, when I would go out for the stinking, no good, dirty, rotten Review Journal newspaper. He would be sitting on my stoop <laughs> right in front of my home in a bathrobe. He, he, he reminded me a little bit about like that guy in New York who used to walk around talking to himself in the bathrobe. And I would drive him home because uh, I was afraid he wouldn't be able to get home. But he was uh, – I, I spent time with Teddy. He went up on a case that I had uh, and spent some time with me in uh, Reno when we were trying the case. The things he came up with were smarter than any lawyer I ever met. I mean he he uh, he had a way of – seeing the whole issue and coming up with a very practical resolution to it. But he couldn't take care of himself. In the bathrobe, that's, he was intoxicated or drugged. I don't know what he was, but he was in a bathrobe. His dad, Benny Binion, yep, yep. one of the, the, the real pioneers. A, a, a real character, and um, I love being with Benny. I would have lunch with him virtually every day with Judge Harry Claiborne, who was very close to, to Benny and his personal lawyer. 
and we would eat at the Horseshoe down at their uh, coffee shop. And Benny would always have the same thing. And Harry would always have the same thing. Harry was squirrel soup? Yep. Harry would have ham hocks and lima beans every day. Like it was a new experience every day to order ham hocks and lima beans. And Benny would order squirrel stew. They'd set it up in front of Benny. And the and I knew the chef very well there. I had represented him on a matter too. And he would bring the squirrel stew. This little squirrel would dead would be looking up with his buck teeth and his glassy eyes right out of the stew. Uh, but he loved that squirrel stew. What can I tell you? I mean, that's Vegas, right? Is Benny Binion, whose autobiography is titled, if I remember, I'll Do My Own Damn Killing. And a guy who, you know, in Texas rumors and I don't know what is alleged or whatever, let's say some gray area stuff and a judge eating breakfast every day. I mean, that, that oh, doesn't it was lunch. happen. It was lunch. It was or okay. lunch. That doesn't happen in Philadelphia or oh, New York. Yeah. Well, let's put it this way. When they do it, they don't tell people about it. In Philadelphia, they do it secretly. Here, <laughs> they had no secret, so they did it out in the open. Jack Binion, another That's son. One of the great guys of all time. Poker, World Series One of, of the best guys of all time. And Jack uh, is in that movie that you were talking about, Mob Law. And I'll never forget what he said because that was unscripted. I mean, we just, you know, we talked just like I'm talking to you, but they were filming it. And he said, um, Vegas is a tough town. He says, um, if you don't behave, it will eat you alive. And what he was saying is if you have a weakness, if you have a weakness, it'll eat you alive. The town will eat you alive. And do you do you agree with that? I do. I do. I, you can't have a weakness here. I, I represented a fellow who was a dealer, a card dealer, a 21 dealer over at the uh, Riviera. And um, he that's all he did was deal 21, 21, 21. You figure he would know what happens when you deal 21. Come payday, every two weeks, they would pay him by check. His hands began to sweat. Couldn't wait to get a hold of that check and cash it and go to another hotel and play 21. And wow. Be, right. Did he think he had a system? That, system? I mean, he's doing it every single day. He ended up a complete bust out. It ate him alive. The town ate him alive. The poker player, talking to poker with Jack Binion, is a lot of poker players with the, you know, the, with the boom in the early 2000s, the drugs, the, the women, the strip clubs. I mean, that story, the, the weakness, I think, is absolutely correct in my, again, only 19 years, but limited experience. Let's go back to one of the, I guess, seminal guys of modern Las Vegas, Howard Hughes. Any dealings? No. Not at all. But he was a four. Was he a force? A force, as far as I'm concerned, he was nothing. I mean, I, I, no one's going to agree with me. He didn't build one thing in this town. Didn't put in one piece of rebar. Didn't uh, bring out one piece of timber. Uh, he just bought things. He wanted to see TV programs, so he bought the station. That's an unbelievable well, story. That's a true story. And he, didn't he buy one casino because the light yeah. was keeping him up at night? Yeah, that's what he did. You he know, just shut the light. I would think there's an easier way to make a room dark, but no, that's what he did. <laughs> Mo Dallance. I knew Mo. Uh, I was a baby lawyer, basically, dealing with him, and he was a force to contend with as far as reputation was concerned. He was part of the Purple purple gang, which uh, supposedly was Cleveland, like, is that right? I, I, either Cleveland or Detroit, one of the two. Cleveland, I think, uh, like a murder incorporated group, but he came out here, and like so many of the founders of Las Vegas, he was well-respected, he was man of the year for charitable organizations, gave a lot of money philanthropically to churches, to synagogues, and to schools, and everything he did here was for the good. I only had one, we always said hi to each other, and Carolyn was friendly with uh, 
uh, a lady friend of, of Moe's uh, at the Las Vegas Country Club. There was a time that people at the Country Club did not want Tony Spilatro to uh, be a member of the club. They, I don't know why they, they came to me. They, they wanted me to go to Moe Dalitz. Uh, because Mo would hold court, basically, at the country club. That's where he would sit every single what day. What year was this? I have no idea. And uh, he wanted me to ask him to please ask Spilatro to leave. And I said, why me? What do, what, what do I have to do with this? <laughs> but we had a nice conversation, and I told Tony. And, you know, Tony said, I don't want to cause anybody any problems, so he left. One of the few people that you called a genius in your book was Jay Sarno. Genius. Genius. You know, they say, a lot of people say Steve Wynn is the fellow who made Las Vegas as we and know the Mirage and that step with the Mirage. Well, uh, there's no question that Wynn was a, a, a genius as far as these hotels and casinos that he built. The Golden Nugget downtown, Mirage, Bellagio, the Wynn, uh, the, the one next to the Wynn. Um, Encore. Encore. Yeah. And he has a beautiful product and he, uh, he's been an innovator. But the real genius behind Las Vegas, in my opinion, was Jay Sarno. He's the one who designed Caesar's Palace. Uh, that was the first theme resort that we had here. So the idea of it's not just a generic hotel, but it's the Venetian in Italy. It's you know, it's the Paris's well, he, that theme. He, he's the one who developed uh, Caesar's Palace, and it, to me, that's what made Las Vegas. That's what took us from. Uh, little hotels with two stories to uh, uh, glamour and to uh, opulence and grandeur. And the Circus then, Circus. Like well, that. he was before his time. Uh, he developed Circus Circus, but he was about uh, 15 years too early and ultimately ended up losing it to uh, Mr. Bennett. Then he was going to – and I represented Jay on a uh, – uh, the government tried him for uh, an $82,000 bribe to an IRS agent. And I got to know him pretty good. And after the trial, he said he's developing a hotel. It's going to be the largest hotel in the world at the time, 7,500 rooms, called the Grandissimo. And I gave him some money to to invest in it, but uh, he died, and uh, the investment died with him. Was that common? Did you have a lot of investments, or were you very selective? Uh, I, I, I didn't. Uh, I, uh, I can't think of any other client that I ever invested money because of. I, I, I can't think that, but uh, having been around – Sarno and seeing how smart he was, how creative he was, I wanted to put my money on him. I thought it was curious. I don't think I read one word about Elvis, any observation. Did you have any sense of Elvis at the time? Yeah, uh, Elvis uh, and myself used the same doctor, <laughs> Elias Ghanem, who had his office on Harmon, uh, close to the Strip. And Elvis was in the waiting room many times that I was up there. I had gout at the time. Dr. Ghana was the only doctor, I think he gave me a shot called Totterol or something, but it's the only thing that gave me any relief at all. And Elvis was fighting a weight problem. So the two of us would sit in the waiting room and just chat. I think he knew who so I was. So if he saw you, he'd say, Oscar, how are you? I, 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 I don't ever remember him saying Oscar, but we certainly knew each other. Wow, that is wild. Sheriff Ralph Lamb. A adversary. His word was his bond. He told you something, you could go to sleep on it and not worry about it. And I fought him tooth and nail. But mutual respect. Maybe. I hope he respected me as much as I respected him. I thought he was a hell of a guy. And um, it, it's funny. Uh, maybe there was mutual respect. I, I, I think it's a great story. I, I represented Tony uh, uh, Nick Sevilla, uh, who was the head of the Kansas City outfit. And Nick loved the um, neck bones 
that um, Mrs. Ruvo, Larry Ruvo's mom, would make at the Venetian, which was a little Italian restaurant on Sahara. I remember when I moved to town, they had the late night menu special half price. I was there a few times. <laughs> and uh, Nick would, uh, uh, he would sneak into Las Vegas because every time they found him coming to Las Vegas, the sheriff or one of his deputies would be at the airport to greet him and turn him around and put him back on the plane. They didn't want him here. So Nick got a little fed up with that. And he came to me, he said, Oscar, he said, they're violating my civil rights. I'm not bothering anybody. All I do, want to do is have some neck, bo- neck bones. I said, sounds reasonable to me, Nick. <laughs> so he says, well, what are you going to do? I said, I'm going to sue the sheriff. Make sure that you're able to come here for your neck bones. Well, I never made a threat in my life as far as a lawsuit without carrying it through. So I actually did the work of the lawsuit. I prepared it. And I called the sheriff up and I said, sheriff, this is Oscar. He said, I know who you are. I said, um, I, I have to meet with you because uh, I have a client who has a, a problem. So he says, when do you want to meet? I mean, just like that. That's why it was such a great town. I mean, here's a, a, a young lawyer wet behind the ears, basically, calling the sheriff, who's the most powerful man in Nevada at the time, and saying he wants a meeting. And the guy says, when do you want to meet? I said, I'd love to meet tomorrow. He said, what time? I said, 5 o'clock. He said, uh, I'll see you at 5. I said, all right, I'll be there right after work. He said, what do you mean after work? I said, 5, five o'clock, 5 p.m. He said, "Uh uh-uh, 5 (laughs) a.m. And I had a little office at the time over the flower shop at Las Vegas uh, Boulevard and Bridger. And it was a great little office. The flowers would waft up through the floor. (laughs) It was very cool. And uh, I get there about a quarter or five, and he's waiting for me in front of me. It's pitch dark outside. So you're trying to be there early. Yeah, and he's he's waiting for me. (laughs) And I opened it up. In those days, he had a key that opened up the front door. And he walks right up, right to my office. Sits down right behind my desk, <laughs> puts his feet up on my desk and reaches under my desk and starts feeling around. And I said, what do you, he says, I'm for a bug. I said, I wouldn't do that. I don't do business that way, uh, which I wouldn't. I'm not going to bug a guy who's coming up to see me. And he, uh, uh, he listened to what I had to say. He said, okay. He said, I'll tell you what, as long as you call me when he's coming into town and tell me he's here, I won't bother him. And call me and tell me when he leaves and I won't bother him. Said your words is good for, uh, as far as I'm concerned, it's good. So that's the way we did it from then on. I tell you, it's so telling because on one hand, you're so critical of some of the oh police. Well, you know, for, for guys who are honest and legit. That's what I'm saying. It's not I, like you were I anti- love them. That's the kind of law enforcement officer I want. I mean, to me, that's the story, right? It's, well, not, it's not I don't like law enforcement. You want it to be legitimate. Of course. Of course. And uh, Lamb, it's a funny story. Actually, it's fun. It's a sad story. We became dear friends over the years. I mean, when I'm talking about dear friends, he he actually attended parties uh, for my wife when she was running for mayor. And it was uh, 100% behind her. He was, he was great. He couldn't have been nicer. And he comes up to Oscar's restaurant at the plaza, and he says, what are you drinking? I said, Sheriff, you don't want to drink what I drink. <laughs> uh, I said, you're not as well as you should be. And he wasn't. He was, he, he was ill, uh, but he was strong, and he was handsome, and he was smart. And I said, you don't want to drink what I drink. He says, I do. I said, Sheriff, you don't want to drink what I drink. He says, what are you drinking? I said, well, it's a Bombay Sapphire Martini with a jalapeno in it. He says to the bartender, give me one of those Oscar drinks. Next thing I know, he's on the floor. <laughs> they <laughs> carried the poor sheriff home. <laughs> Let's talk about Oscar's, the restaurant. Yes. Uh, well, it, it's very uh, It's a nice thing for me. I was very critical of the of the plaza and the owner of the plaza, because I was trying to develop the downtown when I was elected the mayor. And the plaza, to me, was a blight. You, wa- you walked up to, to the second floor where the restaurant now is, and it looked like uh, there, there had to be a couple of dead bodies that bled out there. 
And uh, I said to the guy, I said, I, uh, you better fix this place up or else I'm going to have some of my former clients arson it. <laughs> and he thought it was funny, but he knew I was a little serious. Not that I would have them arson it, but I wasn't about to tolerate this kind of blight in the downtown. So the day after I left City Hall as the mayor, uh, he came to me and he said, if I fix it up and uh, build a restaurant for you, would you uh, let it be named after you? And, and, and I said, you bet. So they uh, they made a beautiful restaurant, Oscars, Beef, Booze, and Bras, we call it. And he uh, had great steaks uh, over at the plaza. And I go up there and I make a speech about every two months about my prior life, like we're doing today. And uh, it's very- how How often do you hang out there? Oh, I go up uh, whatever, uh, whenever I want a good steak, I go up there. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm not without drink at home. Let's put it that way. I don't have to go up there to get my booze. But uh, I go up there. Uh, I, I enjoy it. I, I like the people. I like talking to the people. And uh, I'm there uh, not as frequently as they would like, but uh, as frequently as I like. And he, uh, it's, it's been very, very good. It's been very successful. I think we just finished our sixth year, which is amazing. And uh, they're going to actually refurbish it over Christmas. Uh, so it'll be sparkling again. But it's a, it's a nice, old-fashioned Las Vegas place. And we'll be talking in a minute about downtown. Well, we got to talk in a minute because I'm leaving here in a minute. Uh-oh. Well, we better wrap it up. Let's get to the best stuff. Mike Tyson. Mike Tyson. Rare guy in the book it seemed like you were ambivalent about. Uh, you were no. very positive about it. No. No. Okay, go ahead. No. I don't know why you would say that. I, uh, I was very fortunate because Don King found me when I was a young lawyer. Once again, you're going to ask me the year, and I can't give you the year. But <laughs> no worries. It was the year of the Esteban de Jesus, uh, Roberto Duran fight. Um, the IRS was putting a hold on the fight uh, over the purse. And Don King, who I had not met at the time, came up to my office, and I got real lucky, and I was able to get the fight to go. And every year after that, I could count on King sending me a case that paid me at least twenty-five dollars to $100,000. And when uh, Tyson got uh, into trouble with the Vander Hollyfield ear incident, uh, he came to me and he said, uh, what can you do for Tyson? And I got very, very lucky again because the doctor who repre- uh, who took care of Elvis and myself was the chairman of the Athletic Commission. And he uh, called me aside and he said, you know, don't don't have a trial here because you're going to lose. Uh, he was giving me very good advice. And he says, and don't um, take a a suspension because that would last an indefinite period of time. He said forfeit the $3 million, which had been seized after the fight, and uh, take a revocation. I said, a revocation? He says, listen to what I'm telling you. He says, with a revocation, you come back and you can reapply after a year. And I knew that Tyson was a money machine for Las Vegas. And these hotels would want him to be fighting here because he was the draw as far as a heavyweight boxer was concerned. So I listened to him, and we took the uh, revocation, paid the fine. A year later, I got him his license back. And probably millions of dollars he benefited that's, from. That, uh, and I, the city. I, I hope so. Don King, last individual. I read one prosecutor said the smartest person he ever cross-examined. Did you get a sense? Don was very, very smart. Uh, Don was a character, and I enjoyed every, every moment with Don. I represented uh, Larry Holmes. Uh, who had been subpoenaed by Giuliani back in New York when Giuliani was a U.S. attorney to testify against Don, and we beat Giuliani up. I'm not talking about physically, but uh, we, we 
we won that real good. Don, uh, Larry never testified against him. And I got to know Don very, uh, very well. And, um, you know, a lot of people hate Don because he was found guilty of, I guess, a second degree murder, did some time. And this was before any. Parole. Yeah. Yeah. And, it, you know, he was a character. He had that fuzzy hair sticking up in the air. And he was always shouting his mouth off or waving the American flag around. And a lot of people didn't like him. With me, he was 100 percent. So I take a person for, you know, their value as to how they treat me. After 35 years as an attorney or so, you have said in your book, being Oscar, that the job was becoming repetitive, that you were doing it for the money, and quote unquote, didn't like the person I was becoming. No question. Why? Well, I'd like to think we spent about an hour and 15 minutes telling you why I liked being a lawyer. Mm -hmm. And after Spalaccio died, uh, I told you I had a void in my life. I didn't realize how much time he took up. So I had a lot of people call me and they wanted to hire me. And it just didn't seem to be the challenge that I had in representing a guy who supposedly killed 26 people. And um, I didn't realize that it, uh, immediately when it was happening. But on reflection, I saw that I was just seeing how much I could charge somebody when they came into my office. It was almost a game that I was playing with my head. And you used to do a flat fee, right? Yeah, well, but, but the flat fee went from, let's say, 25000 to 250000 to $2.5 million. So it wasn't about an hour, like 600 bucks no, an hour. No, so uh, sometimes I, I made a fortune uh, with a phone call, and other times I got stuck in a trial for four months uh, with a $7,500 fee. So, <laughs> you know, it, it, it balanced out. But I didn't like my – I look at myself in the mirror and I said, I, I, I'm not about money. I, I always made money, but I never thought about making money. I, I was lucky that way. So that wasn't a big driver for you? Money was never a driver for me because I made money – my whole life I made money. I made money as a kid. I always had a job. I was an elevator operator. I was a janitor. I mean I, I – you don't start off as a big shot lawyer. You, you start off from the bottom and you, you hope that you, you reach a nice point. Uh, but money was never something that concerned me. My wife wasn't a, a spender. You know, Tony Spilaccio said it best. You can only eat one steak at a time. <laughs> so I, I had that philosophy with my life and I didn't like myself. So I went home one night and I said to my wife and kids, I said, I, I got to do something different because this isn't what I'm about. I'm not about charging a lot of money because that's not me. So that's when I decided to run for mayor. And you quote that you were a 17 to 1 underdog. Now, where did that, that was, number come from? That's a, what's the name of the, uh, the London book? Oh, Lloyd's of London? No, the oh, other one. Oh. Starts with an H. But the, you could actually bet on Oh, this. yeah. Oh, 17 to 1. Yeah, 17 to 1 underdog. Wow. And not only did you win the first time, this was the eye popper for me, Mr. Goodman, is your two re-elections and then you were term limited. That's correct. Over 80% of the vote. Well, the second election, I got 87% of the vote, <laughs> and I'm still looking for the 13% who didn't vote for me. <laughs> and the second time, I guess a lot of people figured out I was going to, a third time, they figured out I was going to win. So I think I got 82% of the vote. And I was really ticked off then. I mean, in this day and age, or even, you know, not that long ago, that's it. What, what do you think made you so popular? Because I told the truth. Uh, I was, but, a, but why wouldn't many other politicians? Do I that? don't know. A lot of politicians don't tell the truth. I, uh, I, I was the mayor the same way I was a lawyer. If I couldn't look at the jury and look them in the eye, they knew I would be a phony. So I, I, I always looked them in, in the eye. That's why I rarely put a client on the stand. And uh, the, the way I tried my cases, I tried the government. I, I really wasn't defending my client. I was trying the government in my cases. So it was easy for me. Donald Trump. What about him? You mentioned. I know him. He's the president. He, you mentioned that you two, and the book was written a few years ago, so before right. he became president, right. is two of the biggest egos. Oh, 
Um, Trump had come out to Las Vegas when I acquired as the mayor uh, the 61 acres that we now know as Symphony Park. Uh, we were looking for a developer. And uh, I wanted to have eclectic architecture, different kinds of buildings like the Smith Center for Performing Art, which is Art Deco, uh, the uh, uh, Ruvo, which is a Frank Gehry design, very modernistic uh, brain institute building. And that's associated with the Cle- Cleveland Clinic? Cleveland Clinic that mans it and is uh, fighting these neurodegenerative diseases. Uh, pretty, pretty impressive. And Trump came out and he wanted to look at the land. So we went downtown. And uh, we walked it together, and, and he was charming. Um, and uh, I said, I, I just don't – it's not a, an issue of not doing business with you, but uh, I really want to have different kinds of architecture, and I don't want to have these monolithic, uh, beautiful, gleaming buildings that you build one after another. That's not what I'm interested in here. And he said, I understand. I said, but you could do me a big favor. I said, um, we have this railroad line that runs right through the property, bisects it. And I, I don't know what to do. It, it, it drives me nuts. He says, let me tell you a story. He says, when my father, when Trump's father was developing properties back in New York and New Jersey, the, he had to contend with the railroad lines. And he said, my father always looked at the railroad as a river. And when I started to look at it as a river, it made a lot of sense because I had the west side and the east side. Mm-hmm. I was able to differentiate between the two. And I enjoyed it. I, uh, he, he was very positive in my decision as to how to develop the the property there. So uh, we're back in New York, and I don't know how the meeting got set up. He wanted to see me on something, and uh, Carolyn was with me, and we went up to his office at the Trump Tower. I think it was the Trump Tower. And um, went to his office, and his secretary uh, showed us in, and he was on the phone uh, with uh, Harvey Weinstein, uh, the producer from Hollywood and the, Mayor pu- Max. And the pu- publisher of uh, Being Oscar. Oh, okay. And he's on the phone with him, and uh, Trump is talking to uh, Weinstein about it was the day after The Apprentice, uh, the first Appen- Apprentice show uh, viewed on TV. OK. Premier. And he's talking about that and he's full of himself. Well, it just so happened the night before when The Apprentice is on, I'm on my first CSI <laughs> playing a cameo part and I'm full of myself. <laughs> so he hangs up the phone. I'm telling him about CSI. He's telling me about The Apprentice. Carolyn's looking at the two of us. We leave there. She said, you didn't hear a word he said. You, he didn't hear a word you said. It was like two ships passing in the night. She says, I almost choked with the egos in that room. People don't realize Donald Trump obviously was famous before The Apprentice, but The Apprentice was next level for him. Mm-hmm. Casino the movie. Yes. You're in it. You participate. I was a star with uh, with, uh, with De, Ni- De Niro, Pacino, and Pesci. Or I'm sorry, Pesci and right. Goodman. Yeah, <laughs> and Sharon Stone. Don't leave her out. <laughs> to what degree was that a catapult brand wise for you? Oh, it's it's not. I don't look at it as brand wise, but it was a but great. You talk about your brand a good bit in the book. It was, it was a great experience. Let's put it that way. And people, you know, I'll, I'll be in an airport still, and people won't say there's a mayor or there's a mob lawyer. That's a guy in casino, which amazes me because. If I was in it a total of two minutes, I think it'd be a lot. But people still recognize me from that, although I look completely different. I'm a little more handsome today than I was in those days. <laughs> you had that beard get in the way of Oh, boy. Uh, do you ever see a bushy beard like that and a full head of hair and it's brown? Wow. <laughs> the thing that surprised me about Casino when it comes to your comments about it is you said some of the stuff either in the book or the movie you didn't know well, I, about the warring factions well, and the different I didn't, people. I, I, I tell people I didn't know what I was doing. 
until I saw the movie Casino. I didn't know who I was representing until I saw the movie Casino. Had I known what was in the movie Casino being the truth, I would own uh, private planes. I'd have islands that would have been destroyed uh, recently in the Caribbean. Uh, I mean, I, uh, I, I would have been a very, very rich guy. I just thought I was a lawyer. But it's not that you didn't know these were potential organized crime people. It was the idea that they, no were, they were mad at each other. I had no idea. I mean, here I'm sitting uh, five minutes uh, in a room with Spilacho and five minutes in a room with Rosenthal. And apparently one's going out with the other's wife and they hate each other. And I'm representing them both like they're the best of friends. Now, you've many times said or at least a few I've read said the wife, Jerry, played by Sharon Stone, that you were skeptical that there was an affair. Have you changed your mind on that? All I know is that uh, the the one person who I put a little credibility in was an IRS agent that I met when I was making a speech about three or four years ago. And he said his job, he was from L.A., he said his job was to follow her around. And he confirmed that to me. I I had no idea in the world that Tony Spilaccio and Jerry Rosenthal had anything going between themselves. So Lefty, famous sports batter, some and, and the De Niro character, you were very positive. What happened to the camera? What happened to this guy? It's right here. It's it's still recording. You don't need it. It's oh. just it's on you. It's, I'm, I'm looking for the guy who's in charge, and he disappeared. He went to the restroom. <laughs> I have to go to the restroom. Let's get out of here. What are you doing? <laughs> you want to, I tell you, we could. Ten no, 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 no. Ten. No, two minutes. Two minutes. Yeah, you're very good at what you do. Two minutes. I appreciate. Wind it, it up. Okay. Uh, give me 30 seconds Two on minutes. Lefty. Uh, a genius. Okay. Another genius. He's the one who developed the Raisin Sports Books as we know them today. He, he took it from the storefront into the, the glamorous uh, Raisin Sports Books that we have. He was a perfectionist. He uh, was not tolerant of imperfection. Um, had all of his clothes personally made uh, down to the socks. Uh, he, he would walk around the casino, and if he saw a cigarette on the floor, he'd pick it up even though it was somebody else's job, and then fire the person whose job it was. That's, uh, that's Lefty, and, and Lefty taught me a lot of lessons. You know, I learned, I, see, I listened to people too. Lefty said, uh, never, always tell me the truth. And I blew a, a, a time limit uh, in, in one of the cases where I had to file a certain paper by a certain time. And instead of trying to cover it up, I went to my client who was Lefty at the time, and I said, I made a big mistake here. I'll try to rectify it, but I can't promise that a judge is going to let me do it. But I let this time period go by. He said, I appreciate you telling me the truth. Just don't make the same mistake again. And I was lucky I got the judge to allow me to file it, telling the judge the same thing. I just made a mistake, and my client's going to be penalized as a result of my uh, incompetence or whatever. And it, it all turned out right, but I learned that lesson. Never lie to anybody. Two last questions. The longest questions in the history of the world. <laughs> What was the biggest lesson that you've learned that you didn't know, let's say, when you were even 40? Uh, I think I learned the lesson uh, as to what's important in life. And uh, my wife did a wonderful job raising our kids. And I was busy working all the time. I think if I had to do it all over again, I would have not worked all the time. I would have spent more time with my children because they didn't miss me. She raised them right. But I, I missed a lot of ball games. I missed a lot of uh, concerts. I missed a lot of presentations in school. And I think that's all part of life. So I, I think I might have done it differently. And to me, I've seen a lot of books that have the, oh, I love my wife. I love my kid. The genuineness of your love for your wife and your kids in this book, in your book, Oscar, uh, being Oscar the book, unequivocal. I think it came across. It really well, did. Well, it's true. Last question. 55 years of, of marriage. Your dad eventually 
could have been a judge, but with patronage, he didn't want to give the 10,000. You had the Harry Claiborne who became very disenchanted with the legal system. Uh, law enforcement, you're, you're obviously have been disenchanted with politics. You've talked about other politicians, often liars, greedy, self-interested. In hindsight, other than your family, is there anything that you feel more connected to that you can believe in more than over time that didn't dissipate, that didn't lower in esteem? It seems like almost everything you were involved with, you felt worse about it when you were done with it than when you started with it. Well, I, I think there's a lot of truth to that. No, um, I, I think my priorities are much more in order uh, today than they ever have been. Um, my family's number one. Uh, I love God. That's number two. Were you always religious throughout those years? I, I don't know whether I'm religious even. I, I, I mean, I go to uh, the Jewish temple uh, uh, on the high holidays and uh, uh, to uh, recognize my parents' uh, memorial date. Uh, they, they passed away, but, um, I can't say I'm a religious. I pray every night, uh, uh, but it's a thankful prayer. I don't ask for anything. I thank God for all he's done for me. And, um, I, I think bef- between family and God and just living life, I think I'll sum it up this way. We'll end the, uh, we'll end our conversation this way. Every morning when I leave the house, my wife, who I love dearly says the same thing to me, carpe diem. Seize the day, and that's what I try to do. I try to make every day a good day uh, and a day, uh, a day that's meaningful. Well, this has been truly an honor. Thank you. Well, Mr. it's my David. honor, my privilege. You're a heck of an interviewer, and I hope uh, the camera worked. I know it did. Podcast One has new shows on our new app. Check out all the cool features to help you explore our exciting new programming, like America's Lakers podcast with Jay Moore, So Random with Corinne Olympios, Attack Each Day, the Harbaugh's podcast, Not Just Sports with Susie Schuster and Rich Eisen, and Sessions with Randy Jackson, as well as your old favorites like The Lady Gang, Steve Austin, Shaquille O'Neal, and Adam Carolla. Get the new Podcast One app in the App Store, Google Play, or PodcastOne.com.